This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Our goal this evening is not so much to learn about Aquinas and Lewis, but to learn from them. Shakespeare's character Hamlet famously said, to be or not to be, that is the question. I want to share with you a secret that I only learned recently. Hamlet asked the wrong question. The question is not whether to be or not to be. The most important question we may answer in our lives is how to be, how to live. This lecture will be successful tonight if it enkindles in you a deeper sense of how to live and a deeper sense that the ultimate answer to that question is found in the courage and hope offered by faith in Jesus Christ. Now in their 2019 book, The Stressed Years of Our, Their Lives, Helping Your Kids Survive and Thrive During the College Years, the authors report the following statistics. 30% of college students report being so depressed that it was difficult to function this past year. Compared with their parents' generation, college students are 50% more likely today to say they feel overwhelmed. The National Institute of Mental Health reports that one half of adolescents and adults have been affected by an anxiety disorder. They continue, the common person worries 55 minutes each day on average. Those with generalized anxiety disorder average five hours per day. A recent study on college students in psychology today found that one in five students suffer from anxiety or depression. 50% of college students reported that they woke up at night to answer texts, resulting in poor sleep quality and increased anxiety and depression. If this was a situation pre-COVID, pre-increased societal and political tensions, how are we doing now? A CDC study from the summer of 2020 found that 40% of U.S. adults report struggling with mental health or substance abuse. 31% with anxiety or depression, 26% trauma or stressor-related disorders, 13% started or increased substance use, and 11% seriously considered suicide. Right? Uh, that's across the board. Right? Suicidal ideation is higher in males than females, and all symptoms are higher in the 18 to 24 age group. Beyond the significant numbers who struggle with diagnosable disorders that impair functioning, many more simply struggle with anxious and depressed moods that impair flourishing. First, let's admit that despite the many technological and medical advances, our contemporary culture is not very adept at knowing how to live or how to pass on such wisdom to the next generation. So with that in mind, let us turn to see what we might learn from Aquinas and Lewis on courage and hope and how we can face these fears and sadnesses. Two preliminary observations are helpful. First, Aquinas and Lewis share a classical view of the human person as having three levels. We have an intellect and a will, we have emotions and passions, and we have bodily desires. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man, he memorably names these three as the head, the chest, and the belly. 
We can think about the Greek words behind those, the logos, the thumos, and the eros. He summarizes the classical and Christian conception of the moral life in which the head rules the belly through the chest. Now, the inclusion of the chest or the thumos, the emotions or the passions, often surprises modern listeners since we often think of morality as focusing on actions and our reason and not on our emotions. It is worth observing that in Aquinas' famous treatment of the moral life in his Summa Theologiae, he dedicates only 16 questions to human actions compared to 27 questions on human passions and many more on the virtues. Lewis thinks that modern philosophy and education have erred by ignoring and impairing the formation of the chest. By modernity's efforts to make all values subjective and relative, there is no longer any standard by which we might form our emotions. He describes moderns with the memorable expression, men without chests. Lewis notes, however, that we do not cease to have emotions in a relativistic age. If the chest does not serve the head, the chest will end up serving the belly. Fears and aggression will increase. We simply lose the skills to learn which passions to encourage and which to discourage. So that is the first observation. Human beings have a three-part structure, head, chest, and belly. Any attempt at finding happiness and living well must find a way to integrate all three. Now, the second observation follows from the first. In a chapter from Mere Christianity called Morality and Psychoanalysis, Lewis distinguishes different ways in which the chest or the emotions may go wrong. In the case of phobias or extreme fears, the emotions overwhelm the person so that the will cannot engage. Such extreme anxieties and fears are not moral disorders, but psychological disorders. Just as a broken leg is not a moral failure and requires a physical remedy, so such severe psychological illnesses require psychological remedies. Although bad moral decisions may well cause psychological and physical wounds and hinder recovery from such wounds, moral effort itself is powerless to heal either. We cannot will our leg to heal faster any more than we can will a phobia to stop. What our wills may do is to seek the appropriate help and attempt to follow recommendations for recovery to the best of our ability. The goal of such psychological healing is to bring the person back to the level in which the emotions no longer overwhelm the will. Then the moral struggle to form the emotions may begin. With these distinctions in mind, let us turn to courage and hope. Aquinas follows Aristotle in first describing courage as the willingness to fall in battle. Lewis at times will simply describe courage or fortitude as guts. We might call it strength, toughness, grit, or resilience. Now Aquinas will distinguish amongst our passions or emotions into the concupiscible or the desiring passions and the irascible or the fighting passions. And he places courage in the irascible. He says that the concupiscible passions focus on the sensible good or evil, which causes pleasure or pain, right? We desire what is pleasurable and we flee from what is painful. But the irascible passions add the added dimension of difficulty and struggle 
in attaining the sensible good or avoiding the sensible evil. Aquinas somewhat poetically describes the irascible desires as the champion and defender of the concupiscible desires, right? Since the irascible helps us to strive to attain what is desirable but difficult to achieve and to fight against evils from which we might otherwise flee. So for Aquinas, courage then habituates the irascible passions to respond appropriately and in accord with reason. Courage, he says, faces evils by both aggression and endurance. In the face of attacks and injustices, courage helps us to avoid either shutting down and doing nothing or overreacting with destructive rage. Courage describes a spirited willingness to confront an external obstacle or even perhaps to make a change in our own life. Now, Aquinas does not consider this willingness to confront and attack as the best manifestation of courage, but instead teaches that courage is chiefly seen in our endurance of dangers. As he states succinctly, endurance is more difficult than aggression. Since the pleasure, the presence of the danger often mitigates aggression, but exaggerates fears. Aquinas knew that fears are often the most debilitating passions. He goes on to define this aspect of courage as an action of the soul cleaving most resolutely, in the Latin fortissime, to what is good. The result being that it does not yield to the threatening passion of the body. Courage feels the fear, but does not yield to the fear and cleaves to the good. Aquinas describes such endurance of courage as that by which, quote, the brave man curbs his fear, end quote. It is not that we do not suffer, but we live through sufferings with resilience and endurance. Now, I want to suggest that Aquinas' attention to fear is perhaps surprising. We tend to think of the Christian moral life as more worried about avoiding pleasures of the body than fears of the soul. As powerful as sensual pleasures are for tempting us to abandon the good, even more powerful is fear of danger. Aquinas writes, quote, fear of dangers of death has the greatest power to make man recede from the good of reason. So Aquinas shows that our hearts generate countless fears. As he puts it, all fear arises from love since no one fears save what is contrary to something he loves. And he observes that evils that do not admit of a remedy or of any easy solution inspire the greatest fear. These many fears can, turn us, can lead us to turn away from the good of reason. In terms of the earlier three-part structure of the human person, when fears become rampant, the chest rebels against the head. Now let us turn to Lewis on the virtue of courage. As war broke out across Europe in the fall of 1939, C.S. Lewis returned to teach at the University of Oxford. Now Lewis himself was no stranger to war. He had fought in the trenches of World War I and had been injured by a shell inadvertently dropped by English artillery. In that fall of 1939 in Oxford, Lewis delivered a sermon called On Learning in Wartime, in which he raised the pressing question, why should anyone engage in university studies during a war? And not just any war, but such a war in which the National Socialists in Germany 
threatened the very survival of England and all of Europe. Now, Lewis first noted that the war situation raises questions which every Christian ought to have asked himself in peacetime. Why should we dedicate ourselves to building up human learning and culture when we are in a spiritual war of cosmic proportions? And not only why should we, but more importantly, how can we? He identifies three specific challenges to learning under such conditions. He says that we are prone to be filled with excitement or distraction, frustration, and fear. Now, Lewis writes that the fear, the war creates no absolutely new situation. It simply aggravates the permanent human condition so that we can no longer ignore it. Human life has always been lived on the edge of a precipice. We have always been amidst the specters of death, suffering, crime, poverty, and war. The very drama of being human is to live amidst such fears. Again, imagine yourself as a student arriving at Oxford in the fall of 1939 and watching Germany quickly take over most of Europe. Or perhaps with a little bit greater stretch, imagine yourself attending college in the midst of a worldwide pandemic and unsure of your future finding or finding a job. Amidst these ever-present dangers and uncertainties, Lewis affirms that civilizations worthy of the name have sought to build up human culture, to learn from those who have lived before us about the meaning and purpose of life, to scrutinize reality with all its splendor via the natural sciences and the humanities. Fighting a war or fighting a pandemic entails more than the desire for physical survival or fleeing the fear of death. It is, the def it is a defense of a way of life. So how do we defend a way of life amidst such fears? Now, Lewis not only wrote um, sermons and nonfiction, but he offers fictional stories to help us draw meaning from larger truths. He writes, quote, for me, reason is the natural organ of truth, but imagination is the organ of meaning. Imagination producing new metaphors or revivifying old is not the cause of truth, but its condition. So imagination then adds meaning to the truths that are held by reason. Now let us look at some of Lewis's stories about courage. In a scene from The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, one of his Chronicles of Narnia, the characters in the story are sailing in a ship across the sea. And in the ship, they encounter many different dangers and adventures. Now at one point, they sail near an island covered in complete darkness an island in which they are told all their dreams will come true. At first, the sailors are very excited. And then all of a sudden, they begin rowing as hard as they can to get away from the island. For, quote, it had taken everyone just a half a minute to remember certain dreams that they had had, dreams that would make you afraid of going to sleep again, and to realize what it would mean to land on a country where dreams come true. Though the sailors were rowing with all their might, they couldn't get out of the darkness. They were trapped within their own paralyzing fear. Now, in the midst of this, one of Lewis's favorite characters, Lucy, whispers, Aslan, Aslan, if you ever loved us at all, send us help now. The darkness did not grow any less, but she began to feel a little 
very, very little better. Then all of a sudden, a small beam of light enters the darkness and illumines the ship. Lucy, quote, looked along the beam and at first saw something like a cross, then an airplane, and eventually she saw it as an albatross. The great bird landed on the prow of the ship and then flew in front of them to guide them out of the darkness. As it circled the ship, the albatross whispered to Lucy, courage, dear heart, and the voice she felt sure was Aslan's. And with a voice, a delicious smell breathed into her face. Amidst overwhelming fears, the sailors had lost their direction. Their chests overwhelmed their heads. Lucy's, however, did not. She used her head to look to ask Aslan, a symbolic representation of Jesus Christ in the Narnia stories, for help. By looking along the light and no longer along her fears, Lucy was able to remember that there is something higher than our fears, something that Aquinas described as the good of reason. Aslan in the story speaks to her courage, dear heart. We need help from others and from God, not to let fears blind us to what is good and true in life. In Lewis's imagery, fears are associated with darkness. The island of the fears of nightmares, he simply calls the dark island. Now recall that light is a metaphor for the light of reason. Fear then darkens the intellect. In contrast to the darkness of fear, courage brings light. With courage, we remember who we are, what truly makes for our good and our happiness, namely God and his promises of mercy. As Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Now, not only is life worth living, life, death is worth dying. At a key point in Lewis's story, The Last Battle, at a point when all the earthly hopes of the Narnians have fallen, Runewith the centaur offers these last words to the last king of Narnia. Remember that all worlds draw to an end and that noble death is a treasure which no one is too poor to buy. What does it mean to buy a noble death? Well, a noble death requires courage and toughness in the face of suffering. None of us knows how our courage may hold up in the face of some death, deaths. Nonetheless, we do know how our courage is holding up right now and how it has held up in the past, in the face of past sufferings and trials. First Peter 4.19 teaches, let those who suffer according to God's will do right and entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Now, courage comes at least in part from embracing our true status as creatures that are in the hand of our creator. In the last battle, Lewis presents this truth with imaginative richness. As the last king of Narnia approaches his last battle, he offers the following encouragement to the child chill. But courage, child, we are all between the paws of the true Aslan. Recall also that Lewis reminded us that a noble death is a treasure which no one is too poor to buy. Well, as Christians, we know that Christ has already purchased that noble death for us. No Christian need ever suffer or die alone, since we now live and die through him, with him, and in him. At the beginning of the problem of pain, Lewis quotes one of his favorite Christian authors, George MacDonald. Quote, the Son of God suffered, un suffered unto death, not that men might not suffer, 
but that their sufferings might be like his. Now, perhaps Lewis's most beautiful description of trust in God in the face of fear and uncertainty comes in his work of science fiction called Paralandra. Now, in that imaginative retelling of Genesis, the first man and the first woman created on Venus go through temptation. Lewis presents the image of turf-like islands that float on the oceans of the planet Venus. These islands instantly conform to the shape of the waves, an image of what the rational creature ought to be doing, namely perfectly conforming to God's will. Now on Venus, the man and the woman are commanded not to sleep on the fixed lands, but only on the floating islands. Here is how Lewis has the queen describe her eventual acceptance of that command. Quote, and why should I desire the fixed except to make sure well, to be able to, on one day, to command where I should be the next and what should happen to me. It was to reject the wave, to draw my hands out of Maladil's, or Christ in the story, to say to him, not thus, but thus, to put in our power what times should roll towards us. End quote. The king in the story summarized his temptation in terms of facing suffering and death. He gave me no assurance, no fix to land. Always one must throw oneself into the wave. Now the reality of the creature is one of awaiting the waves of divine providence. Wisdom and happiness come in welcoming those waves rather than fighting them. In Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain, he suggests that pains and fears are not only to be avoided, they are also to be learned from insofar as they break down our illusions of self-sufficiency. He writes, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Lewis continues, we are most keenly aware of God's character in our suffering. It is when our self-sufficiency is peeled away that we see how weak we really are. Lewis will later point out in Mere Christianity that one of the first things one discovers when one begins to reflect on the virtues is how little any of us possess them. Lewis's friend J.R.R. Tolkien of the Lord of the Rings trilogy wrote, actually, I am a Christian and indeed a Roman Catholic. So I do not expect history to be anything but a long defeat, though it contains, and in legend may contain more clearly and movingly, some samples and glimpses of final victory. Now, I wanna suggest that there's something wonderful and freeing in our admission that modern technological reasoning is finally incapable of making the world safe and secure and eliminating our paralyzing fears and anxieties. We are freed from the illusion of achieving perfection in this life. What a relief. Trusting in God and welcoming the waves of divine providence ought not to lead to quietism, but instead should inspire us to act with greater boldness, leaving the results in God's hands. Lewis himself would go on to teach throughout the war. He wrote several books, countless essays, gave many, many talks to the Royal Air Force, the RAF, 
and gave a series of talks that would go on the BBC that were um, among the most popular ever recorded by the BBC and would eventually become mere Christianity. And he did all of that without any security that England would survive or that anyone would even be around to read his books. So grim determination and sour resignation are not the fruits of the Holy Spirit, but rather love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Paul would tell the young Timothy, you did not receive a spirit of timidity, but the spirit of power, love, and self-control. At the end of his essay, The Weight of Glory, Lewis recommends play and merriment before the most serious matters of life. Perhaps that is the key. No longer fighting the waves of divine providence and not only welcoming them, but perhaps even playing amidst them. Let us take courage and encourage one another, for we are all in the hands of the true God. Now, if courage strengthens the chest as the seat of the emotions and helps us to withstand fears, hope is the virtue that strengthens our head as the seat of our reason and will, by which we are confident in attaining true happiness with God in heaven. Among the great virtues of faith, hope, and love, hope is often neglected and misunderstood. Hope is what I like to call the Cinderella of the theological virtues, right? Faith and love seem to get all the homilies these days. Now imagine that faith, hope, and love are a three-legged stool. Without hope, the virtues of faith and love cannot stand. Christ sets such a high standard for love that it might as well seem to be unattainable. We might respond either by lowering the standard so that we could fit in, or by living our lives under doubt and worry about whether we will ever meet such a standard. If we have anxieties and fears about passing exams, getting jobs, finding spouses, surviving political regimes, just imagine the anxieties and fears associated with worrying about whether we will be with God for eternal life. Hope is the key to solving this dilemma. In short, hope trusts that we will arrive at our goal of union with God through the mercy shown in Jesus Christ. God will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Now, Thomas Aquinas first presents hope as a passion or an emotion. Hope, he says, desires a future good, difficult yet possible to attain. Something in the future, something difficult, yet something possible. Are these not the goods that inspire us the most? Those that are difficult yet possible to achieve, if something is too easy, it's not rewarding, and yet if it's impossible, we cease trying. Interestingly, Aquinas says that the emotion of hope is found most in the young and, well, the drunk. Um, Aquinas says that the young and, well, the inebriated, and he does put the, them in the same category, have, well, expansive hearts and are thus spirited and hopeful. He also says that they have an inexperience of obstacles and an inexperience of their own shortcomings. So the young and the drunk easily count things possible. Yet we might consider that following Christ requires something like the inexperience of our own shortcomings that comes from the forgiveness of sins. And recall Jesus's words that unless you become, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, he says that daring and audacity follow from hope. 
and daring and audacity work to calm fears. He also observes, again, um, that drunkenness causes a false kind of daring through making a man think greatly of himself. End of quote. And I will add, typically without good reason. Aquinas says, but the rightful hope, however, leads to daring and audacity by making us confident that victory is indeed possible due to our own strengths, or as he puts it, the strengths of our friends. That's going to be very important. We'll come back to it in a minute. Now, the emotion of hope is seated in our passions and our chest. Right? The theological, hope, theological virtue lies right in our wills, in our head. Hope is no longer a feeling, but now it's a decision. It's a decision to trust in God's promises. This hope seeks the greatest good and the most difficult future good, eternal life with God. Now, unfortunately, union with God is not only difficult, but impossible on our own, for we have broken faith with God and cannot return on our own initiative. Nonetheless, God sent his son into the world so that all who believe in him may not perish, but have eternal life. John 3, 16. In Christ, the infinitely difficult, infinite good becomes infinitely achievable. Intrinsic to the virtue of hope is that it seeks the help of God. Now, this is extremely contrary to our current nature in which we struggle with pride and the refusal to surrender completely to God. Aquinas presents the delightful turn of phrase, hope leans on God's help. Unlike the drunk and the prideful, hope does not trust in our own strength. The two errors related to hope come from failing to trust in God, either despairing of attaining heaven or presumption that we can attain heaven without turning from our sins. Aquinas will say that hope trusts in God as a helper strong to assist. Now, just as faith and love cannot stand without hope, so hope cannot stand without faith and charity. Faith unites us to God by believing that what he has spoken is true. Hope then follows from faith, since faith believes in God's help to attain eternal life with him. As Aquinas will say, faith assents to God's mercy and omnipotence. Hope then unites us to God by trusting in his help to bring us to him as our good. Aquinas then will continue and present hope fundamentally as confidence. Right? That's what he thinks is the best description of hope. More than even a desire for God, it's confidence in God. He says that therefore hope has a kind of certitude, not the strict certainty of our salvation, but a confidence in it. Hope's confidence follows from faith because a man derives hope by believing the word of the one who promises to help him. So in this way, hope offers a kind of certitude of conviction, according to Aquinas. Aquinas makes it clear hope does not trust in our own virtue or in our grace, but in God's omnipotence and mercy, whereby even he that does not have grace could obtain it, so as to come to eternal life. Okay, now hope also requires charity. Aquinas teaches that with the advent of charity, quote, hope is made more perfect because, and I love this line, we hope chiefly in our friends. To hope chiefly in our friends, what does that mean? Well, remember that Aquinas defines charity as friendship with God. Such loving hope, quote, 
hopes to obtain good from God as from a friend. Now Aquinas, moreover, observes that the more we hope in God, the more we will love him. There is nothing selfish about wanting to be happy. The only thing wrong is wanting to be happy on our own terms, according to the agenda of our ego, as if we expect God to satisfy our desires and longings in their current state. Hope thus seeks eternal life, which consists of nothing else than the enjoyment of God himself and thus of God's will. Lewis, in The Great Divorce, writes, In the end, there are only two kinds of people, those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says, In the end, Thy will be done. As St. Paul writes, hope does not disappoint us. Aquinas notes that the confidence of hope leads to confidence in prayer. He writes, prayer is an expression of hope, for it is written in the Psalm, th Psalm 37, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him or hope in him, spera in Latin, and he will do it. Prayer hopes primarily in eternal life and yet may include earthly goods as referred to life with God. Aquinas says that hope does not admit of an extreme. You cannot hope too much. He says it's impossible to trust too much in the divine assistance. Aquinas also suggests that our hope for heaven ought to lessen the difficulty of earthly trials. Now, when C.S. Lewis reflected on his conversion in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he saw with new eyes how all the seemingly disparate elements of his life had been united by this elusive desire and longing for something more. In Mere Christianity, he went on to develop this argument. He developed this into an argument for the existence of God based upon the spiritual longing or hope, an argument that some have called the argument from desire. For Lewis, this ubiquitous human desire is evidence for something beyond this world that could finally fulfill that desire. As Lewis aptly puts the argument, the fact that I thirst is no guarantee that there is water in the next room, but it would be very strange indeed were I to experience thirst in a world without water. So also it would be very strange indeed were we to experience this constant longing for something this world can never satisfy. If there were not in fact the God who created it, in whom our hopeful hearts could finally rest. In The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Lewis tells the story of a boy named Eustace Scrub, a spiteful boy who becomes a dragon after going to sleep on a dragon's hoard of gold with prideful, greedy, dragonish thoughts. Now recall that dragons and serpents are symbolic of evil forces in the world and in our hearts, so that to become a dragon is to fall into sin. Now among the many difficulties in being a dragon, and I'm sure there are many, is the problem that Eustace cannot leave the island. He is far too large to ride on the ship, and the ocean distances are far too far for his flight. So the goal of their journey is no longer difficult, but has now become impossible just as is our journey to heaven after our sins. Eustace eventually attempts to remove his scaly dragon skin by scraping off the outer layer as a snake might do. 
He tries three different times, but each time his skin underneath remains just as staley and dragonish. All earthly hope is lost. Now at that very moment, Aslan, the great lion, says to Eustace, quote, you will have to let me undress you. Eustace says, I was afraid of his cause, but I can tell you, I was pretty desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The first very tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And he began when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. Eustace displays hope. He ceased to trust in his own strength and relied completely on the divine assistance to free him from his sins and to get him off his island, right? And so to, right, to get us off the island of this world so we might attain heaven. Paul emphasizes the same orientation in Philippians. Right? One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. It was an unspoken hope that eventually reached back and pulled Lewis into the faith that he might be surprised by joy, a hope that Thomas described as a childlike trust in an attainable joy which draws us towards itself despite past shortcomings. With Lewis and Thomas, perhaps you too can see how this hope has been present in your past and how whatever your past or present failures, right, those missteps need be no obstacle to what lies ahead. In another one of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Silver Chair, Lewis tells the story of a rightful prince who is stolen by a witch and taken underground to a huge cavern known as Underworld. Echoing Plato's allegory of the cave, Lewis depicts the battle to see beyond the world of images to the world of higher realities. Now at the climactic scene, the children in Puddleglum, a character, by the way, who was based on a faithful old gardener from Lewis's childhood home, they attempt to rescue the prince away from the evil queen of Underworld and bring him back to the land of Narnia above. Representing the objections of contemporary naturalism and materialism, the witch says there is no world but this world. There is no sun, only these underground lamps. There is no Aslan, only your imaginings. Now, to find the distinction between illusion and reality, Puddleglum does the most surprising and brave thing. He picks up his bare foot and stamps it on the nearby fire. As we saw earlier, Lewis said, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The incredible pain and, well, awful smell immediately clear Puddleglum's mind, and he announces, I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan, delete it. And I'm going to live like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. Now, Lewis is not advocating a kind of blind faith. What he does mean, however, is that there will be points in our lives when the experience of faith and the experience of hope are dark and cold. Puddleglum was in a dark night of the soul. For Puddleglum really was in an underground cave and couldn't experience directly the Narnian sun. And so also we are in this world and cannot yet experience heaven directly. Right? The necessary thing is to keep hope alive in the midst of this darkness and separation. Aquinas teaches that, quote, the believer does not believe lightly, levitare, right? It does not believe that way. We believe firmly, 
heavily, strongly. There really is a merciful God whose mercy is revealed in Jesus Christ, who will bring us home as long as we seek the light over darkness, fidelity over betrayal, repentance from our sins rather than their mere excusal. Lewis and Thomas remind us that there is room for hope regardless of our current circumstances and whatever our feelings may tell us. Now, what are some concrete practices that we might adopt to grow in courage and hope and to put into practice some of these lessons from Lewis and Aquinas? Now, remember that virtues are like muscles. They grow through practice and repetition through our cooperation with God's grace. Now, we're calling our initial distinction among the three parts of human nature, head, chest, and belly. Let us begin. First, what we do with our bodies matter. As the saying goes, move a muscle, change a thought. When we are feeling anxieties and fears, we might go for a walk, hit the gym, do some yoga. Even a minute of deep breathing can lower our blood pressure and heart rate. We might get in the habit of, say, maybe 20 minutes every day, at least for sustained movement. Not as an effort to achieve bodily perfection that will never come, but to achieve emotional calmness and equilibrium that we might remember who we are. In his Summa, Aquinas suggests that when we become sorrowful, we should perhaps try some sleep and a warm bath. Um, he actually does say that in the Summa. Um, and I would suggest that we might want to try to become sleep ninjas, okay? Folks who take their sleep seriously and banish the phone from bed. Secondly, our emotions and our chests are part of us. We might learn to notice our fears. Rather than trying not to have them, which never quite seems to work, we might try to learn about them. Lewis at one point suggests that when we are dealing with fears or temptations, let us stop looking along them. Let us stop looking along the fear, but rather look at the fear. Thus, the emotion loses the power to dominate our thoughts. Recall that Aquinas said that fears come from loves. So instead of thinking that fears are bad, consider the underlying love at work. Perhaps you feel anxiety around tests. Such fears might come from a very noble love of doing your work well. Aquinas observed that courage's aggression comes easier than courage's endurance of suffering. Well, we might focus then on the courage to change ourselves, our attitudes, our actions, our words, right? Trying to become the best version of ourselves. Anxieties can multiply because we focus on things outside our control. Let us draw instead to the focus on ourselves and our growth. If our depression and anxiety become overwhelming, let us have the courage to fight it and seek help from professionals and support groups. In another remedy for sorrow, Aquinas says that, quote, sorrow is lessened by sympathizing friends. A problem shared is a problem halved. Let us have the courage to open our hearts to others and also the courage to offer support to others in turn. Lewis said to the students during World War II, 
that we ought to focus on our present vocation to be students. Lewis one time said um, that the duty, doing the duty of the moment is as necessary to Christianity as is theology. For many of us today, this means studying when we are studying, eating when we are eating, texting when we are texting, etc. In other words, banish the phone for an hour of study each day. It's not only good for your grades, it's a concrete way of saying that you trust God just enough to run the universe for one hour while you can ignore your texts and social media. Courage for most of us is not going to be shown by running into a burning building. Courage is more likely to be practiced in resisting the urges of distraction. Remember the, the urges that he mentioned of fear, of excitement, distraction, frustration, and fear. Resisting those urges and perhaps preparing for class and learning the assigned material. Third, we might foster hope in our heads and in our wills. Now, in an essay on Hamlet, because I don't want to leave Hamlet out in, um, in, in the bad category, Lewis noted that by the end of the play, Hamlet had found himself again by learning to trust in divine providence. Quote, the readiness is all. We might begin each day with an act of trust in God. Lord, despite my failings and weaknesses, I trust in your mercy and love and your power to bring me home to eternal life. Just for today, I will focus on the day you send me and foster confidence in the heaven that awaits. Just for today, I will think of now and the hour of our death. When we are amidst paralyzing and imagined fears of what might happen, perhaps with Lucy, we might stop looking along our fears and call out for Aslan and hear his words to us, courage, dear heart, and follow the path he shows. When I feel as though I cannot get out of the dragon skin of my bad habits and sins, with Eustace, perhaps, we might ask Aslan to cut them away. When we are in the midst of caves of unbelief and despair with puddle glum, perhaps, we might choose to live like a Narnian, even if I can't experience Narnia right now. When, I, when we are in the midst of great suffering, perhaps with the king and queen of Paralandra, we might choose not to say, not thus, but thus, and instead throw ourselves into the wave and welcome and play amidst the waves as they come. When we remember that God has a plan for each person and for the whole cosmos, we can see, perhaps, that the waves of divine providence do not happen to us, but rather for us. Aquinas finally said that hope trusts in our friends. Let us remember and foster and be confident in heaven as a reunion with our best friend, right? The one God, our heavenly Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And let us close with the words from Pope St. John Paul II, the great witness to hope, who visited Denver for World Youth Day in 1993. And this is what he spoke to the youth of that day. Christ needs you to enlighten the world and to show it the path to life. I would say that he showed it how to live. Place your intelligence your talents, your enthusiasm, your compassion, your 
fortitude or courage and hope at the service of life. But be not afraid. The outcome of the battle is already decided. So thank you very much.